Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 3. Be our text for this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 3. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 238. What a joy it was to just hear an update from Pastor Matt. Uh, I know for me personally, I've had, I've got, I got to be a little honest, I've had a lot of people come up to me and ask me, like in the first couple days that Pastor Matt left, and asked me, you know, how is he doing? And, and I would say, well, I think he's doing well, but... I'll be honest, I had no confirmation that he actually was, so very thankful. I saw some posts on uh, Facebook as well by Rich, but, um, but it's great to, to see him give an update and, and, uh, and hear that they're doing well, and as Noble mentioned, not feeling um, sick or anything, as I know that is a major uh, concern going into uh, international travel like that. So what a blessing it is, and we'll continue to pray for them um, as they, they continue their work that the Lord has for them there. Um, so, you know, I thought it would be helpful uh, before we even dive into our message today to let you know that this is going to be our last message uh, on David for a few weeks. Um, over the next three weeks, we're going to be hearing from a few different uh, preachers uh, from various ministries that we support, and then uh, on March 26th, we'll look to uh, resume that series um, uh, in David. And as actually, as it was lined up initially... Uh, when Pastor Matt came back, he would come to preach on March 26, and his text was actually going to be Second uh, Samuel chapter 5, which is when David becomes the king over all of Israel. Um, however, that actually didn't happen, so now he is going to come back to the triumphant account of Ishbosheth uh, being slaughtered in chapter 4. So, still an important point, uh, no doubt, but, but slightly different, I think, uh, different vibe from chapter 5. Um, but like I said, that's going to be a few weeks from now, uh, so today we're going to be looking at chapter 3. And last week we looked at chapter 2 where we clearly see this tension between the house of David and the house of Saul, and it is continuing to culminate and continuing to get worse and worse, and this tension eventually leads into a battle uh, between these two armies with Joab leading the charge for the house of Saul and, or I'm sorry, the house of David and Abner leading the charge for the house of Saul. And the climax in chapter 2 happens when Abner begrudgingly, not wanting to, actually giving Asahel many warnings saying, turn back from me, don't continue to pursue me. Uh, but as Asahel continues to pursue Abner, uh, Abner has no choice but to turn around and kill Asahel. And Asahel, if you remember, is the brother of Joab, one of the brothers of Joab. And as this chapter comes to a close, we see that this initial battle at Gibeon has finally ended, and the chapter concludes with the funeral for Asahel. However, we know that this is not even close to the end of the fighting between these two houses. As chapter 3 begins, it starts off right away in verse 1 saying that there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. As Bill Arnold notes, uh, this statement really serves as a summary uh, of the war years. And these war years persisted for quite a while. Second uh, Samuel 2.10 says, reminds us that Ishbosheth was king over Israel for two years, so we know that there was at least two years of this persistent battle, this persistent tension that was just ongoing. And if you've been paying attention to our study, you have noticed uh, that David's path to become king over Israel has really been paved with blood. Um, not necessarily of his own doing and not of his approval either, as we'll clearly see in this chapter as well as chapter 4. But nonetheless, there is a lot of violence that takes place before David is ready to become king of Israel. 
There is a lot of blood that has been shed, and chapter 3 is no exception. And this chapter really in particular focuses on Abner uh, quite a bit. And I would say that Abner and David uh, really serve as the main characters in this narrative. And in fact, Abner's name is actually mentioned. If you were to go through chapter 3 and count the the amount of times Abner is mentioned, he is mentioned 28 times uh, in this chapter, showing how important he is here. In this chapter, we'll see uh, Abner leave the house of Saul and join David. We'll see Abner then be murdered by Joab, and then we will see Abner mourned by David uh, and by all of Israel. And as we dive into this section of scripture, this narrative here, I think it would be very beneficial for us to read this account in its entirety. So go ahead and follow along with me as I read, uh, starting in verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth Ithrim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ea. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. 
When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, and to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Syrah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all of his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the buyer. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen." And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also, if I taste bread or anything else until the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all of the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue our worship service, we ask now that you would be with us. God, help us to grasp the truth that you have for us in your word. We pray that you would speak to us now through your holy scriptures. Yes, this in your name. Amen. So as we look at this first section, we see after this ongoing fight, Abner finally joins David. If you can't beat him, join him. And this is what Abner will attempt to do. Again, this chapter opens with the summary statement about the long war that persisted. And then in verse 2, we read that David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. This is the massive contrast that we see uh, between the house of Saul and the house of David. David continues to gain strength, while the house of Saul continues to lose strength. And not only did David's house continue to grow stronger, but as we see in verses 2 through 5, his family grew larger as well. In these verses, we read of six sons that were born to David, but we also read that they were from six different wives of David. And we know from Scripture that David had many wives. We know that eight of them are mentioned in the Bible. Um, But we know based on 2 Samuel 5.13 that David had many more wives and many more concubines than just simply eight. And it's very important to see that this is not looked upon with favor by the Lord. And this is certainly not an evidence passage for the support of polygamy in Scripture. 
David is guilty of two offenses here. Not only is he guilty of going against God's command in Genesis 2.24 to become uh, one flesh with one woman, he's also directly violating the command of the Lord in Deuteronomy 17.17 regarding kings, where it says that the king, referring to he, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. So this is no small offense here. And as we continue to see David's life unfold in the coming chapters, we will see that these decisions prove to be very costly. Maybe right now it looks like things are going well, but as the story continues, we see these decisions come back to bite David. And John Calvin says in reference to this, that a man must be the husband of one wife only. Here is the sentence that God pronounced on the matter. It is not good for a man to be alone. Let us make a helper fit for him. He does not say, let us make two or three women, but simply one. Thus it is a direct overturning of the ordinance of God and the institution of marriage when a man takes several wives. David committed a double sin. For in addition to the common law that speaks to everyone, it is stated particularly that the king should not take several wives. These are most serious and inexcusable offenses. End quote. And I think this quote really helps to point out the severity of David's offense, of David's actions. This was not a small deal here. And while I don't want to simply just, or while I don't want to belabor this point, I do think it is worthwhile to point out that this is not commended anywhere in Scripture. This practice is never seen with favor by the Lord. And so now after mentioning David's growing strength and his growing family, the narrative then shifts to Abner and the house of Saul. Verse 6 says that while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So Abner again is the general of Ishbosheth's army. He was the commander of Saul's army. And he is growing in political influence and he's growing in strength in the house of Saul. In other words, Abner is growing stronger and stronger in an increasingly weaker kingdom. And note that he was making himself strong, not the house strong. And what seems to be true about Abner, as we saw in last chapter as well, is that Abner really only cares about Abner. He will do whatever he can to further his cause, no matter what that may be. And even Ishbosheth seems to catch on to his schemes in verse 7, where he accuses Abner of having relations with Rizpah, who was one of Saul's concubines. And again, this was no small matter. Back in, in that time period, in that day, the man who took the wife or the concubine of a deceased king asserted, really asserted, their claim to the throne. And so if guilty, if Abner is guilty of this offense... This is a power move that would put Abner next in line to become king. And while we do not know how far Abner would have taken this, or even if he is guilty, the text just does not tell us. We see Abner's defense of it, but it doesn't tell us clearly that he was guilty of this offense or not. But whatever the case, Ishbosheth seems to be onto uh, whatever Abner is doing. Ishbosheth may have been a, pup, a puppet, he may have been a weakling, but Ishbosheth was not stupid. He sees what's happening. And his accusation causes Abner's strength uh, to turn into frustration, causing him to decide both out of spite uh, as well as logic to take what he has, take his influence, and bring the north into the arms of David. 
So look what uh, Abner says in verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And so simply put, Abner seems to be sick and tired of Ishbosheth, and he wants out. And that first phrase he uses is interesting. He says, Am I a dog's head of Judah? And what he's basically saying here is, Am I a worthless traitor that has not been faithful to you? Have I been faithful to another? And to double down on his loyalty, Abner says that he has continued to show steadfast love to the house of Saul and has not given them into the hand of God, or into the hand of David. And I personally find it very interesting that he uses the word steadfast love to describe his loyalty to the house of Saul. Steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed, and hesed doesn't just mean love. And hesed doesn't just mean loyalty. Any instance of hesed being used in scripture is a very strong word with a very strong meaning of covenant love or covenant faithfulness. A bond that can't be broken, that that won't ever be broken. An example of hesed between two people, if we were to just look at two, a human interaction of hesed, I think would be the picture of Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, where she says in Ruth 1, 16 and 17, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. I think the biggest example of Hesed, of course, in Scripture, is seen in God's covenant love to his people, where he promises that he will never leave them, that he will never forsake them, that, again, he will be their God and they will be his people. Even though the people may flee, God will never flee. God will never abandon them. This is the picture of Hesed, And I'm sorry, but Abner is not showing Hesed here. Hesed would have meant that Abner stayed, but he doesn't. In the same breath, he is saying that he is leaving Ishbosheth to join David. And now my argument here is not that Abner should have stayed with Ishbosheth and it was wrong for him to join David. I'm not necessarily saying that. Um, I certainly think he took the wrong motives. He, he was in it for the wrong reasons to join David. Um, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is just saying that this was not a picture of steadfast love. And it wasn't a picture of future loyalty to David either. As we've already established, Abner is in it for Abner. You know, he wasn't driven to this decision by theology, but rather by politics. You know, he didn't want to expand David's kingdom because he recognized the weight of the Lord's promise. He recognized what the Lord has said, but rather because Abner was seeking his own advantage. 
And if Ishbosheth was not going to roll over, then his next best option would be to show his support for David and his influence over the northern tribes as a sort of bargaining chip that he could use with David that would help him to seek to gain a powerful position um, in David's kingdom. So maybe an example will help. So me and my wife recently started watching the show Survivor. And uh, for those of you who are wondering, um, yes, that show is still going on. Uh, I think they're on like season 46 or something like that. And and I'll be honest, the first time I saw her watching Survivor, I came home from lunch and for, for my lunch break and, and I came in the room and she was watching Survivor. And I'll be honest, the first time I saw it, I laughed because I was like, who who watches this show anymore? I don't think I've, in this decade, I don't think I've met someone that says I was watching Survivor the other night. And But I, I will say that before this episode that I watched was over, I was already connected. I was already hooked and, and I was in. And in Survivor, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the show, there are these two tribes that come together, two groups of people that are split into two separate tribes, and they're put on these separate islands where they have to live and survive with each other. Um, and at a certain point, as, as the tribes are there and living, every challenge, if the team loses, they go to a, a council where someone is voted off, and so the tribes continue to dwindle. And at one point in the show, the two tribes will come together and become uh, one big tribe. tribe. And uh, what often happens is a lot of times that once they become these, these one, this one big tribe, a lot of times the people in these separate tribes remain loyal to each other. Um, and so what happens a lot is this one tribe will come into the merge. That's what it's called when they merge together. Um, and they will have more members than the other tribe. And so they'll have the numbers game and they'll just slowly begin to just dominate the game. This one tribe will just take out all of the remaining people from the other tribe. And when this happens, it causes people on the losing end of the battle to try and make a desperate move to do whatever they can to get back into the game, whether they need to form a new alliance or change their strategy, whatever it is, they're going to do whatever they can to stay a part of the game, to not be the next one uh, going home, to do whatever they can to get back into a position of power. And this is what Abner is doing here. You know, recognizing that his tribe is crumbling, he is trying to make a big move to regain power for himself. He's going to find a new alliance. He's going to do whatever it takes to get back into the game. And he will even, as we see, quote scripture if it means supporting a a pro-Abner move, if it means helping further his cause. And again, he's seeking the kingdom now not because of a love for the Lord, but rather a concern for his own position. That really seems to be all that matters to Abner. And unfortunately, I think that Abners don't disappear. I think we see many more of them uh, in Scripture. Of course, not the name, Ab- not the name Abner, but, but rather the character of Abner. I think one big example in Scripture is found in Acts chapter 8 in the New Testament in Simon the Magician. And here was this man who appeared to be the premier convert um, in Samaria under Philip's ministry. And Simon had professed faith in Christ. He was even baptized as a symbol of his faith. And then when Peter and John come into the scene, he quickly offers to pay them as much as they wanted, give them whatever they could, they, that they desired, so that John and Peter, in turn, would give Simon the power of the Holy Spirit to heal people. 
And so, obviously, Simon is completely misunderstanding what it means to be a follower of Christ. And rather than recognizing that God is the one who deserves the glory, Simon saw this as an opportunity to make a name for himself. And whether we look at the the example of Simon or we look at Abner in Scripture, we must be alert as followers of Christ to our own Abner-like mentalities. You know, even the most faithful servants of the Lord know that there are times when it is very tempting, you know, to be more concerned with whether God's people will be impressed with them, whether God's people will like them and congratulate them rather than giving the praise to the Lord. And if we're honest with ourselves, we must admit that Abner is not far from any of us. We must guard our hearts so as not to fall into that dangerous trap. And as this narrative continues, Abner continues this quest to join David. Verse 12 tells us that Abner sent messengers to David, offering to turn over all Israel to him. And David responds to this by accepting Abner's request on the basis that Michael, who is David's wife and Saul's daughter, would be returned to him, hoping to strengthen his claim to Saul's kingdom. Just as a kind of an aside, if you're confused by the second half of verse 14, uh, that narrative is found in 1 Samuel 18, if you want to read about that, where Saul is hoping to have the Philistines kill David. And, and so in doing this, he tells uh, David that he must bring him a hundred Philistine foreskins in order to marry Michael. I, again, I understand that sounds very bizarre. Um, and so if, if you would like to know more about that particular narrative in Scripture, uh, like I said, you can find that in 1 Samuel 18. Uh, and in verse 15, we see that Ishbosheth does oblige to this request from David and, and does return Michael to David. And as one commentator points out, this scene reeks with sadness as we watch Paltiel, her husband at the time, heartbroken and helpless, turn back for home. And I just, I have so much sympathy for, for Paltiel because here he is who's, who has married this woman and, and now he's just told that um, she's no longer your wife. And, uh, and, and he just weeps with her the entire way back home. And then as soon as he gets there, it's like Abner has absolutely no sympathy at whatsoever and just says, get out of here. You're done. You're, you're gone. And so he returns, and you know, Abner is probably a pretty big man, so probably very intimidating, and, and so Paltiel obliges and, and leaves. Um, and there's just so much sadness in that account. And, and uh, we will not hear from Michael again now that he's been, she's been restored to, to David. We will not hear from her again until later on in chapter 6. And the story of Michael, similar to with Paltiel right here, is not a happy story. Um, but at this point, the scene shifts from Michael. The, Michael isn't the focus, and, and it comes back to Abner, who is now on the side of David and among the elders of Israel. And verses 17 through 21 really highlight uh, Abner's continued efforts to bring all of Israel under David's rule. In verse 20, Abner gets to Hebron, and to celebrate, David throws a feast for him and, and all the men who were with him. They have this massive celebration, this massive uh, party, so to speak. And all things seem to be, at this point, going according to plan for Abner. But I think in verse 21, we, we read a very key phrase. At the end of the verse, it says, So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And that phrase, in peace, is repeated two more times 
in the next two verses, in all three instances, are referring to Abner, who was a former rebel of David who had caused so much trouble. And it says that there was now peace. And I think this here is, is a glimpse of the nature of God's king and his kingdom, where former rebels find peace. So the history of Abner's relationship with David could be described as once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, as Colossians 1.21 says. Just a short time ago, Abner was the force behind the war that started this chapter. But now Abner has been reconciled, not because of any goodness in him, but rather on the goodness of David. And what's important at this point is the change for Abner, the important change for Abner, was the change in who his king was. Now, as we've already seen, Abner's story will very soon take a very terrible turn. But we shouldn't miss here the picture that we see how the kingdom of David in many ways is a shadow of the kingdom of Christ. Similar to Abner, we who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless before him. The picture is that we serve an incredible God and Savior who has reconciled sinners to himself. But unlike the kingdom of Christ that promises eternal security, the kingdom of David is not able to make the same promises. And Abner will soon find out that this reconciliation does not last very long. As we shift into our next point, like I just stated, we see Abner's life take an awful, awful turn where we see Abner murdered, really in cold blood, in verses 22 uh, through 30. And verse 22 begins by saying, Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. And I believe this serves as really the turning point in this passage. It says, just then. And I see that as, as the warning that something is about to happen, kind of a, a sort of foreshadowing. And as Joab returns, Abner is nowhere to be found because David had sent him away. And once again, Abner had gone in peace. And upon hearing this news that David and Abner are now allies, seemingly allies, Joab is, to put it mildly, not very happy. In verses 24 and 25 says, Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. So Joab is not a fan of Abner, and Joab is very skeptical of Abner, accusing him of spying on David and deceiving him with his words. And we actually don't see a response from David. However, I don't think this, I think this is definitely not for the same reason that Ishbosheth, who, out of intimidation for Abner, had not responded to Abner when he was confronted. And because of that, Abner was able to defy Ishbosheth right to his face. But as we've clearly seen, David is no Ishbosheth. You know, David is the farthest thing from a pushover. And if you need any evidence of that, just read any account with David ever in Scripture, and you will see very clearly. And so it, it's not because David, David is intimidated by Joab in any way. 
Um, But what's ironic is that Joab, because of this, had to proceed with his actions behind David's back. And as John Woodhouse puts it, Joab had to do what he had accused Abner of doing, deceive the king. And so similar to Abner earlier in the chapter, Joab, who is now frustrated with his king, took action by sending messengers to bring Abner back to Hebron. And we don't know what message was used to bring Abner back, but whatever it was, it clearly worked because Abner did return. And it's very key to see the ending of verse 26, but David did not know about it. And one commentator wants us to see that a major concern of the author is to show that David was not guilty of involvement in the death of either Abner or Ishbosheth, as we'll see in the next chapter. Verse 27 shows us the result uh, of this wicked action. When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. So again, it was said three times that Abner had gone in peace, which in other words meant insecurity. So David had essentially promised Abner immunity, which shows that, Dave, that Joab's action had really, was really a, uh, committing the most sinister form of treachery that there is. And as we look at Joab's motives for killing Abner, we see in verse 27 as well as in verse 30 that it was for the blood of Asahel. So Joab and Abishai were avenging their brother's death. Abner had killed Asahel, so now Joab had killed Abner. However, Asahel's death should not have been avenged because Abner had killed Asahel in battle. And as we talked about last week, very reluctantly, even at that. And so if it was murder, then Joab would have grounds for vengeance, but it wasn't. Abner killed Asahel during a time of battle. Joab killed Abner, or killed, yeah, killed Abner during a time of peace. And while I think that is a huge reason why Joab killed Abner, even the text says that this is, I think there was more to it. You know, I think that Joab was more concerned about Joab as well. I think part of it was, although clearly the text doesn't say this, so I am speculating here, we don't know for sure, but I think that part of it is that Joab saw a rival in Abner, and he was afraid that Abner may replace Joab as commander of the army. And so I see envy really playing a major role in Joab's dealings with Abner and using personal vengeance for Asahel as a sort of cover-up for what the real motive was. And so if Abner's not far from us, then I would say that Joab is not either. While we may profess that our desire is to build the kingdom of God as believers, we can oftentimes get caught up and become far too concerned about our position and what we need to do to be recognized, rather than being concerned about Christ's name being proclaimed among the nations. And instead of saying, he must increase, I must decrease, We say in our hearts, he must decrease, I must increase. I would encourage us all to examine our hearts and recognize where our Joab tendencies lie and pray that the Lord would give us the strength to remove this dangerous mindset from our minds and from our hearts. In his own mind, Joab believed that he was fiercely loyal to David. However, his ways were clearly not the king's ways. 
After all, the only reason he was able to carry out this evil deed is by keeping it a secret from David. But the secret would not last long as David hears about it in verse 28. And the time that passes between verse 27 and verse 28, we're not clear of, but it doesn't seem to have been long, but it is nonetheless significant because David doesn't hear about what's happened until it's too late. And so once he hears of this news, David becomes greatly distressed. And to show not only his further innocence in this crime, David, but also where David's loyalty lies, he actually invokes a curse on the house of Joab, showing, I think, that first and foremost, David's loyalty belongs to the Lord, not to Joab. And the details of this curse, I think, aren't as important as the horror of it. David's words are charged with intense emotion here. Joab had set himself against the will of the king, and by doing this, Joab had set himself as an enemy of the king. And in verse 30, we get a summary of what has happened. It says, So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. And as we move on, we see that after Abner is murdered, he is then mourned. In verse 31, David says to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. David put Joab in his place by ordering him to take part in this official mourning for Abner. Since Joab was the cause of his death, it would have been very strange for Joab to then wear sackcloth as though Joab himself was grieving for the man that he willingly murdered. And this would not be lost by the crowds who would clearly say, uh, clearly see, as verse 37 says, that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And David's desire to honor Abner was shown by his place as the first mourner in the funeral, also by the fact that he was the one that led the expressions of grief, and he was the one who wrote the poem for this occasion. And in this poem, David likens the death of Abner to the execution of a criminal. He starts the poem off by saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? And this seems like a pretty strange way to begin this poem. And I think there are multiple interpretations as to why he says this. And one way that I interpret this as saying is really in regards to the manner of Abner's death. So if you remember how Abner dies, it says that Joab takes him out to the midst of the gate. And again, there are different interpretations to what that means, and I think either one is fine. Again, it's, it's kind of speculating what it means that he came to the midst of the gate. Um, but how I interpret that is that Joab went to talk with him outside of Hebron. And I think, granted, it would have been right on the edge of Hebron, but nevertheless, still outside of the city. And Hebron, this is important because Hebron was a city of refuge. In that city, Joab could not have touched him. Abner, at the least, would have been subjected to a trial. He would have at least been granted a trial. Now, of course, Joab, in in an act of vengeance, could have just simply ignored 
that altogether, that Hebron was a city of refuge. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to kill him anyways. Um, he could have just ignored that for sure. Um, but I see this as a strategy to, to draw Abner outside of Hebron. So he wasn't guilty of at least killing within Hebron. He knew he'd be guilty of these other things, but at least that's one less thing that I'm guilty of. And so I think that Abner willingly stepped outside of the city of refuge. And that is when Joab killed him. And that's part of why David said that Abner died as a fool. Abner was a fool to leave Hebron, to leave his refuge. And I think that is a beautiful, powerful message for us today. Because there is a refuge for every sinner in Christ. Regardless of how smart a man is, how powerful they are, how strong they are, what position they might hold, what, what Pete, the society thinks about them. If they are outside the place of refuge, they are lost. And Christ is the sinner's refuge. It is he who we run to for security, who we run to for protection and for comfort. It's why we sang just a little while ago, you know, your name is a strong and mighty tower. Your name is a shelter like no other. Your name, let the nation sing it louder because nothing has the power to save but your name. Christ is the believer's shelter. Psalm 46 one says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. He's our refuge. And if you are in Christ, cling to him, rest in him, In him you will find rest from the endless, fruitless efforts to save your own self. It's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, 29-30, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you are not in Christ, run to him. Recognize that he is the only way that you can have security in this world. If you try to live your life apart from resting in Christ, the Bible would actually say that you are a fool because all of your efforts will be in vain. Jesus says in John fourteen six that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that there is no one who comes to the Father except through Christ. There is no other way but through Jesus. And as we wrap up this chapter, we see that God has a plan through this messy situation. We've been looking at chapter 3 today, but it's hard for us not to look forward to what is coming in the next couple chapters or even take a look back at what has taken place up to this point. And I do think it's fair to say that things have been pretty messy and they will only get messier in this next chapter. And yet, even in this mess, we read these very telling words in verse 36. All the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased the Lord. Even in this mess, we see that God has still not abandoned David, and he will not abandon David. We haven't seen David become king over all of Israel yet, but we do know it is coming. And I think it'd be worthwhile to look at chapters 2 and 3 and even chapter 4 in light of the grand picture for our own encouragement, for our own edification. 
Because chapters 2 and 3 really cause us to stand in awe as we see God's promise regarding David's kingship coming to fruition. Because all we have really seen up to this point is people who resist the kingdom by force, as we see in 2 Samuel 2, uh, 12 through 32, or who seek it for the wrong reasons. We see Abner doing this at the beginning of the chapter. Or people who are only concerned for their own kingdom, which we see with Joab in the middle of chapter 3. And some would even see David as contributing to this mess because while he did have severe words for Joab after Joab kills Abner, David actually doesn't take any action against Joab initially. And yet, in the midst of all this, for all of the opposition, all of the scheming, all of the foolishness, God's promise comes to pass anyways. This is why for our transformative truth, and I'm sure at this point you guys are dying to write it in because it's not in the bulletin, and a lot of that is because I didn't know what it was until late yesterday, but I think our summary statement for this passage and for this message is that God's plans will come about despite people's and our sinful actions. That God's plans will come about despite people's and our sinful actions. You could also say that God will use people's and our sinful actions to accomplish his good purposes. What came about for David was, as Carl Gutbrod puts it, according to God's decree and sworn promise, but not because Abner lent God his arm, but because God, against and without Abner, makes the deed to follow his word. As God's people, we must remember these earlier displays of faithfulness from the Lord. Oftentimes it can look like we are losing. We can be discouraged into thinking that God's coming kingdom will never actually come. But we must take confidence in the truth that it is coming. For God has decreed it. And we can have faith knowing that because the Lord has promised there will be no Abner, there will be no Joab or any other man or nation that will be able to thwart God's plan. And that is good news indeed. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the confidence that your word brings us. Help us to believe that what you have said will come to pass because you are a trustworthy God. Lord, help us when we are prone to doubt. Like the man in Mark 9 who cried out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Would you help us in our weaknesses? Help us when we doubt. We pray that you would go before us today and that we would leave with your word on our hearts and on our minds. We thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.